my first pastoral call was uh, to Nebraska to church plant, and uh, we chose to name our church Harvest Community Church. Harvest, you know, has a double meaning. It, 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 it reflected on the fact we're trying to harvest people into the kingdom, grow the kingdom. It also is an agricultural place, uh, which you know because their football fans wear corn cobs on their heads. <laughs> we thought about Corn Cob Community Church, but decided against it. But our tagline, the little phrase that we printed and used to advertise the church was seeking reconciliation in every relationship. Seeking reconciliation in every relationship. We, we chose that phrase because of texts like Isaiah 9, uh, where uh, God promises through the prophet Isaiah this prince of peace uh, who will bring about an increasing government that is one of peace where there will be no end. So please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Will you pray with me? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, O Prince of Peace, we come to you this morning asking for your grace upon this hour. May your word go forth, this word of peace that brings peace to where there is no peace, that brings reconciliation where relationships are strained. God, I pray now for my brother Glenn as he raises up Christ to all of us in this room and we see him gloriously. God, may we remember what you've done in history, and may that reverberate into our lives and change us in this moment, December 4th, 2022. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Travis. What comes to your mind when you hear that the promised Messiah is a prince of peace? I'm sure some of us here long for an internal absence of conflict the kind of peace mentioned in Isaiah 26, you will keep him in perfect peace.
peace whose mind is stayed on you? Or maybe you want this morning the kind of external and physical calm which Jesus gave to his disciples in the midst of the storm. Mark 4, he rebukes the wind and says to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was calm. Sure, some of you have storms in your life that you would like that kind of peace this morning. Or maybe you most need the interpersonal peace, which 2 Corinthians 13 sets forth as a worthy goal. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. <clears throat> or maybe what you want this morning is the kind of peace that is characteristic of freedom from fear. Remember when the disciples, after the crucifixion, hid in a room and locked the door for fear of their own lives. Jesus comes through the door and st stands among them and says, Peace be with you. Maybe yours is this morning just much more fundamental than that. Maybe it's reconciliation with God. Like Paul describes in Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Biblical peace is very much a multifaceted and complex subjects subject it, it it delves into a lot of areas of our lives i have for us this morning what i think is a a pretty simple three-point outline to help us understand some of the biblical teaching on this complicated topic to give us some structure it's this i want to talk about the promise of peace then the problem of peace and finally progress in peace so look at the promise first, then the problem with it, and then how to progress in it. First, the promise of peace. You've heard it read already from Isaiah 9. Isaiah promises favor to Israel in the midst of terrible turmoil and trouble. You can, you can start to get a feel for just how bad their situation is at the end of chapter 8. Listen Listen to how chapter 8 ends. Isaiah is telling Israel, because of their hardness of heart and their rebelliousness, that there is coming a very difficult punishment. And here's what will happen. They, and he's talking about the people of Israel, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God. If anybody saw the news this week uh, about Jeremy Lin, he had the audacity to say something negative about China's COVID policy. He used to play for Dallas, but I think he got cut, and so he now plays for the Chinese Basketball Association. So he said something wrong, and they immediately fined him just for saying the wrong thing. This is the kind of king these people lived under. 
So to speak contemptuously against the king is to risk death and against God. And they turned their faces upward and they looked to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. Isaiah here uses this image of complete absence of light to represent the coming depth of Israel's dark despair. They will wander the land unsettled, driven from place to place by an invading army. They will be discontent and impatient, fretting with nothing to feed on other than their own anxiety. Some of you have been there if you're not there today. They will treasonably curse their king and blasphemously curse God. They will abandon themselves to despair and abandon all hope of relief. When they look upward, they see heaven's frown. And when they look down to earth, they see nothing but trouble, darkness, and anguish. That's how Isaiah 8 ends. But, (laughs) but, Isaiah begins his sermon in chapter 9, verse 1. But, 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 as Isaiah looks to the future, and it's a pretty long distance in the future, but God will rescue. There will be no gloom for her her who was in anguish. A light will shine, joy will spread, the yoke will be broken, the battle will finally cease. When will this come, Isaiah? And how will this come? And he tells us in verse 6, for to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will sit on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In the midst of this tragic, personal, and national suffering, Isaiah here calls for faithfulness with a focus on the future. He says, look to the future and trust the God who owns that future. Yes, you are about to enter a time of terrible testing, but do not abandon hope, for a child will be born. A son will be given. Isaiah is saying to us this morning, yes, life in a fallen world is stressful and conflict infests every relationship. But Isaiah comforts his people. He comforts God's people with this promise of future peace. And he calls us to the same comfort with the same promise. Now for Israel, when he says, don't worry because a child will be born, a son given, this is roughly 720, 730 B.C. That is a long, (laughs) a long way distant. (laughs) So they have to really put on their binoculars there to, to get to that. But for us, the second advent is distant. I remember when we, we went to our very first class in seminary on the prophets, and the professor stood up in the front and began his lecture this way, the very first lecture. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I've been studying the prophets all my life, and you're going to thank me for this. I have found out when the second coming is. And I'm, I'm going to tell you this morning, the second coming is 56,000 years from now. Now, he was using that as a way to say to us, you don't know when it's coming. And all of the silliness about saying it's soon, when people think soon means before they die and therefore they get to live differently now because Jesus will come back and fix it the way they want before they die, that is not the way to live. We have to live like Isaiah said we have to live. Yes, a child is coming. Yes, Jesus will come back. No, he does not tarry on his time scale. But brothers and sisters, it's probably not your time scale. <laughs> it's 56,000 years in the future. But God's mercy remains sure and steadfast. And just as that promise sustained Israel of old, we are to have a God-centered hope in the future regardless of the calamities we face. A hope that comes from the Prince of Peace who was promised in Isaiah 9 and born in Bethlehem 700 years later. A newborn is our hope, especially in times of greatest fear and grief. Now, of course, that's not what Israel expected, is it? It's not really what they wanted and that's why they ended up rejecting God's answer, which is what brought the Assyrians that were promised. And when we are honest with ourselves, it's probably not really what we expect either. When we see bullies threatening us, we want bigger warriors on our side, not little babies in swaddling cloth. But God gives us Jesus, doesn't he? God's weakness wins over the world's strength. God's foolishness triumphs over the world's wisdom. Everything man tries ends up failing. And so however impossible it seems, the gospel is true. God makes foolish the wisdom of the world by saving those who believe in the folly of Christ. Christ crucified the power and wisdom of God. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And who is this child? Well, he's the wonderful counselor. He's the one with the best and brightest ideas about living faithfully in a fallen world. He knows what is needed to repair relationships, to build the church, to provide peace in your homes. He knows healing words for the brokenhearted and how to help the hurting and restore the penitent. He is the bread of life for all who hunger for righteousness and he is living water for all who thirst for God. He's the wonderful counselor. He's also the mighty God, the one who defeats all his and all our enemies. He is a peace shield behind whom we can hide because he forces the strong man. He is the strong man that forces peace on all our foes. And he's the only one mighty enough to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God and trust in his name and his authority. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He is the everlasting father. 
Isaiah uses that name because he is the author of eternal life and peace to all who come to God through him. He is the father of the world to come because all things are made subject to him. And he rules all things with love and mercy and kindness. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And he is, in the ultimate phrase that Isaiah chooses, the prince of peace. The prince of peace. He's the omnipotent ruler who creates and preserves peace in his kingdom. When we were his enemies, he made peace with us. Peace between us and his father. And by his death on the cross, he has brought peace to all who put their faith in him. He also, by the working of his spirit, keeps increasing peace in your life, in the lives of God's people, allowing peace to rule over us and bring us delight in what is good and godly. And in his coming kingdom, there will only be peace because everything that makes for conflict, sin and sorrow and suffering and Satan, they will be expelled. So it's a kingdom of peace that never ends. Never was a kingdom ruled by a government so gentle and gracious. Rather than control us by harsh demands, he sweetly influences our hearts by his grace, drawing us to his beauty. He reveals the goodness of his ways and pleads with us to love his will and his rule results in peace on earth wherever his government reigns supreme. The more you are subject to Christ, the easier and more enjoyable your life becomes. At the end of all of that, Isaiah knew that people would say, well, that's just too good to be true. <laughs> and so he concludes his short sermon with this, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That is God's notary seal. When he wants to say, I am stamping my signature on this to guarantee it will happen. This is the way he says it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, many Advent sermons could end right there. I read an editorial in the Wall Street Journal that said the, the perfect sermon length is six minutes. <laughs> and I took that to heart and wrote part one for six minutes. But I know you would be disappointed, and Charlie gave me 50 bucks a few minutes ago to preach a good sermon. Fifty bucks for six minutes is probably too much an hour to get paid, so let's go a little longer. I know you don't want to stop there at the easy part. If you pay close attention to the title of the sermon, it is The Sword of the Prince of Peace. So let's pause for a moment and think about what are the problems with peace. Because all of that peace stuff is nice and, and sweet and glorious, of course, but I know I often do not feel the peace promised by the Messiah. In fact, I, I, I have to admit I'm kind of embarrassed by the lack of peace 
that I personally experience and, and that we sometimes experience in the church and, and certainly that the world has, right? There's internal conflict going on that manifests itself in my life as anxiety and turmoil and worry and fretting and guilt and anger, all of which I've had this week, this morning. Some of you have had it this morning. Thank you, Byron. Amen, brother. I've been meaning to talk to you about that. You know, it's like some kind of nasty sinus infection of the soul. But it's not just internal, is it? It's also interpersonal conflict that comes with arguments and disharmony and bitterness and envy and greed and selfishness and covetousness and, oh, it's disgusting. And then, of course, out in the world, there's, there's war, rumors of war, fighting. When Linus explains to Charlie Brown the true meaning of Christmas, he quotes Luke 2. And the angel who appeared to Jesus at the first advent, or appeared at, at Jesus, for Jesus at the first advent, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Linus doesn't actually end, end it with, with those with whom he is pleased because he didn't know what the text says or he was just offended by the Calvinistic implications of that. But regardless, <laughs> Linus does say, see Charlie Brown, the meaning of Christmas is peace on earth. And then he stops, but that's not where Luke stops. In that same chapter, a couple of verses later, Mary and Joseph have this baby Jesus and they bring him to the temple for circumcision. And the prophet Simeon is there and he predicts this. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and Mary, a sword will pierce your heart also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Hey, we just got this peace thing going and now all of a sudden there's this sword piercing people's hearts. What's going on? When Tim Keller preached from Luke 2 uh, in December of 1993, uh, that very same week, there was a New York Times arts uh, section, a review, an article, an editorial, and the author opined over whether it was good that in New York City, works like Handel's Messiah were performed so often that they became just familiar. He said that uh, the Messiah had lost its meaning because it was performed so often. It lost its sense of shocking force, was the phrase this editorial author used. He said this in the conclusion of his article, after all, how well do we really know the hallelujah chorus? So warm and familiar. At St. Thomas Church, he was writing this, he was at St. Thomas Church listening to the Messiah, so he's at St. Thomas Church. I was paging through the Bible, 
and I came upon the passage in Revelation from which hallelujah was taken. The true Messiah, it turns out, wears a linen cloth drenched in blood and comes and demands supreme lordship over all other kings. The Lord of lords is written on his thigh. <laughs> yeah, we get a warm, wonderful, inspired feeling when we hear the Hallelujah Chorus. But as Tim Keller rightly observes, when you actually look at the text upon which it is based, here comes this lordly figure out of heaven. His clothes are sopping with blood because he has just vanquished all of his enemies. He's riding a giant steed. He has a sword and he says, I am the king of kings. I am the Lord of lords. And he stakes his claim on everyone and demands supreme lordship over all other, other, other kings, over all other faiths, over all people. See, the Bible insists that Jesus Christ came to claim every square inch of the universe as his. Every thought, every opinion, every molecule of your life and heart, like a football fan who runs out to center field and takes their flag and stabs it into the logo of the opponent's team to say, ha ha, we just beat you. The Lord Jesus rides out from heaven and takes his sword and pierces the soul and says, you are mine. A so sword will pierce your soul also, Mary. Why is that? Why does the Prince of Peace come with a sword? Because the only way to peace is by the sword, because all enemies must be vanquished. And that includes, friends, the enemy that is your sinful heart. I love how our catechism captures this so beautifully. It asks the question, how does Christ fulfill the office of a king? And the answer is Christ fulfills the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and all our enemies. What a beautiful sentence. He restrains and conquers all his and all our enemies. Of course, this is terribly offensive to modern people. Peter, he had his soul pierced by a sword, didn't he? Remember that? Oh, Jesus, everybody else will deny you. All of these people up here in the band, they're going to deny you. <laughs> Not me, except tomorrow when there's a little girl looking at me and I'm afraid she's going to punch me in the nose. And I have never met Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus comes to him and calls him to repentance. The sword pierces his soul. And what does Peter write about Jesus later in his letter, he says, Jesus is a stone of stumbling, 
he is a rock of offense. I'm sure he was, he liked that phrase because it played on his name. His name means rock also, so it's probably a little clever there. But what is the thing he wants you to remember about Jesus? He's a rock of offense. People have to trip over him. He drives a sword through my soul and reveals the thoughts and intentions of my heart. You know, this is exactly what keeps people from coming to true faith and repentance and conversion. Now, to be sure, the world is full of people who want peace on their own terms, is it not? The world is full of people who want peace on their own terms. I want to feel good about myself. I want to have no guilt and anxiety. I want to get what I want. I want peaceful, easy feelings. I want others to love me for who I am. I want people to think the best of me. I want people to never complain. I never want people to be offended by what I see or believe. Right? There's a whole list of demands that people bring and say, okay, here's the peace I want. And God, if you will provide that, then maybe I will condescend to follow you. Of course people want peace that lets them do whatever they want. And that's why there's so many counterfeit pieces in the world. For some, it's drink or drugs. For others, it's entertainment and escapism. Probably for some of you, you are counterfeiting peace simply by avoiding conflict or internalizing it, pressing it down so it doesn't ever come out, or at least you hope it doesn't. But my hope for you this morning is that when you hear about this Prince of Peace, when I gave you those four names and described them, that you will, it will wake up in you a longing for something more. That you will not be content with a cheap counterfeit. That you will say, I want, even at the cost of that sword, Mary, I want what the Prince of Peace offers. I want something deeper and more substantial than the world's peace or peace on my terms, or a counterfeit of peace. And if that is you this morning, listen again to the Prince of Peace from his sermon in John 14. Listen to what he says. Peace I leave with you. There's the promise. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. So there's the... There's the uh, Going against, you get to define your own peace. He doesn't say, peace I leave with you. Figure out what you would like for peace and I'll just give you whatever you want. No, my peace, which I promise you and what Isaiah tells us is better. When Israel had their expectations. What we want is the Assyrian army to be blown up. And what Isaiah says is, but to you a child will be born, a son given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. Isaiah says this is better. This is why it requires faith to come to God. So you have to believe this is better because the word preaches it. Peace I leave with you, said Jesus. My peace I give you. So it's not your own peace. And then do you know what he says next? Not as the world gives do I give to you. So it's the promise of peace. It's not your own piece of your own making, and it's not as the world gives. It's not one of those cheap counterfeits. It's a real peace. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. See, the problem of peace is not the peace part, is it? <laughs> the problem of peace is that the sword must pierce your heart. 
and few are willing to have the Messiah who is the Prince of Peace wield a sword into their lives and thoughts and feelings. Okay, in conclusion this morning, let me give you two examples of how to make progress in peace. First, peace comes by the point of the, or as peace comes by the point of the sword. Peace comes through the sword of repentance and peace comes through the sword of obedience. Let me give two brief examples. Peace comes through the sword of repentance. The claim of Christianity is this. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and died a perfect death and now God treats you when you believe in Christ, as if you had done everything that Jesus did. Everything that Jesus suffered, you have suffered. All of his obedience, you have actually obeyed. He accepts you and adopts you as his daughter or son, not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus did. You are treated as if you accomplished everything he accomplished. That's the great transaction that happens in conversion. And for people, what people, when they hear that, they say, well, that's just too easy. Right, it's too easy. All you have to do is receive the gift of the righteousness of Christ, yes, but it is by repentance that you come to receive this gift. What is it? What is repentance? Is it admitting you have done many things wrong? Well, yeah, but no. <laughs> That's only the beginning. It's, it's more than that. It, it's admitting that you have a selfish and sinful heart. It's even more than that, though. It's admitting you cannot change your own heart. Repentance is asking for forgiveness and the power and willingness to change which you lack. Repentance is a sting. It's a sting like a sword, but it's also the sting of an antiseptic, a sting which heals. The sting which heals because true Christian repentance gets to the sin underneath the sin. It gets to the sin underneath the sin. It's not simply saying that God, I've been greedy, please forgive me. But it goes underneath that and says, God, I was greedy because I did not believe you would provide enough for me. It, it goes underneath and says, Lord Jesus, I did this because I did not believe your love was sufficient. I did not believe you loved me enough. I did not believe you cared for me more than I cared for myself. Yes, I was greedy for the neighbor's car or an extra dollar or whatever it is because I thought you wouldn't provide. And see, when you confess that way, when you repent like that, which is the only way to repent biblically, it's a sting, but the very sting is also the antiseptic which heals. Right? Because what am I confessing? I'm confessing, God, that I did not believe you loved me enough. But the very confession is to say, but you love me enough. So the very confession takes you through the pain to the healing. The moment you are pierced by the sword of true repentance, the peace begins. But then also another example is the sting of obedience. You know, you're going to find yourself many times in life at a crossroad. One direction is the path to comfort, 
or ease or selfishness or worldly pleasure or some particular sin. And the other direction is the way of obedience. And you know, if I do what God says, if I obey the word here, if I follow the path of Christ, I'm going to lose something. There's going to be a cost to that. Maybe it's money, maybe it's reputation, maybe it's your girlfriend or boyfriend. It can be a thousand different things. And so the way to quick and easy peace on my terms is to just disobey. The way of obedience is the way of conflict. It's the way of more problems. And in that moment, at that crossroad, God comes to you and says, my precious child, this is a fallen world. It is a broken place. And because, that you're, because of that, you're correct. To go down the path of obedience is going to be hard because the world's broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. In my future world, the way of obedience will always be the way of increasing love and joy and peace and delight. But in this world, there is a short-term consequence that is hard to face. And you must know that conflict always comes on the way of true peace. Jesus purchased peace on the cross. Conflicts are inevitable. You must know that following the Prince of Peace will take you down the road of suffering and trouble and difficulty and temptation. The Bible is replete with this assurance that it will be hard. It's a difficult path. And so what God is calling you here is to accept the sword of obedience and to say, I will follow Christ. Now, knowing that that way has suffering and difficulty does not mean that it will not hurt. It will hurt. But it does mean that you will not be shocked by it. You will be distressed, but you will not be distressed that you are distressed. Right? You'll be depressed. I promise you, you'll be depressed. I preached on that whenever the last time I was up here. You will be depressed. It's depressing. But you won't be depressed that you are depressed. Because you know the sword is coming. But more than that, you know that to us, a child has been given. To us, a son is born. And the government is on his shoulder. And his name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And lest you think now, that's ah, too good to be true. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these glorious promises that stretch us beyond our ability at times to even conceive how they could all come true. And yet, you write them and you put your seal on them, your stamp, your 
notarization, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Lord, please press upon us each this morning the promise of perfect peace for those whose mind is stayed on you, the assurance that your kingdom is a kingdom of peace and there will be an end to our internal turmoil, our interpersonal conflicts, and even to a world internationally at war because of who you are and because of your promises. And then, Lord, press on us and remind us and encourage us by the fact that even though the sword must pierce us also, that the sword which pierces in the hands of the perfect Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. That sword is also the sword which heals at the very moment it pierces. We ask this because this is your promise to us through Jesus. Amen.